Hey, BA fam, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, BA fam. We are five years into making this podcast that we love so much called Brown Ambition, and we could not do it without you. We've gone from me and Tiffany sneaking around my old office building, trying to find places to record. And thanks to you guys, we now have 100,000 downloads per month for this little show called Brown Ambition. We would love to ask y'all for a small favor as fans of the show. Tiffany, what are we looking for? Here's what we'd love from you guys. We already have over a thousand reviews and a five-star rating on iTunes. But you know what's better than a thousand reviews? 2,000 reviews. If you could head on over to iTunes, go to our Brown Ambition page, scroll on down to the bottom, subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating and a review. So subscribe, rate, review. Not too much to ask, right? Easy peasy. We love you guys. And thank you so much for making Brown Ambition what it is. The last five years have been amazing. And it's all thanks to you. on a journey there. <laughs> That's what we call a run in singer talk. You might not know that because you know. Was that what that was? <laughs> All right. It sounded like you tripped a couple of <laughs> Oh man, it's too early in the show for the shade. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. I like shade. You know, a little light shade is fun. <laughs> no, friendly shade, friendly shade. Speaking of shade, I'm trying to find a segue to talk about the thing that everyone's talking about today. Did you read about Trump's tax, Girl, tax returns? Wow. Oh, Lord. I mean, surprise is not the emotion I have. No. Because we all knew this man did not, did everything he could to get out of paying taxes. Yeah. Um, I, my emotions are, what, are, what? where are you at? Where are you at? I've heard from friends who are like, whatever, nothing's going to touch this man. Like, they're just like so done. And I've heard from other friends who are super outraged. Like, wh- where are you at? Honestly, I was actually surprised it was as high as $750. I just assumed it was nothing. <laughs> I was like, he yes. paid $750. Woo-hoo. Um, so that was, I was disgusted. Um, and I don't think he's untouchable. And I think even he knows that. There are things that he said thus far. Like, I don't know if you've seen some of the articles that said that he has basically intimated that he will not cede power peacefully. Mm-hmm. So that one is troublesome, but then also it means to me that he thinks that there's a very strong likelihood that he's not going to win. There's just so much stacked against him. So, of course, folks who are hardcore Trump followers, they're not going to care, you know. But there are people who voted because they said, well, how can, how bad could it be? Those people are like, yikes, this is how bad it could be. So I think those people are the ones that might come on over to 
the other side, not because they love the other side, but because they're like, wow, this is actually way worse than I ever anticipated. I just, again, it, and it's like you said, and I've got family in Georgia who are pro-Trump and you can't tell them nothing and we've tried. And, you know, and I think it's worth trying even if you're not going to get anywhere just so that you have some other voice in their heads. But when it comes to his base and you think about who his base is and how he really appealed to working class white voters. And then, of course, you have the people who voted for him because they're wealthy or business owners and they knew that a Trump presidency would lower their taxes, which it did. But if you look at his, you know, base of working class white Americans, like, yeah, I'm I, I'm pretty damn sure they've paid their taxes, right? And I, I just, it boggles my mind that they can support someone who so clearly does not, it's just so, it's hypocrisy, you know? He he does not stand for, you know, lowering the tax burden for, for low-income people, for middle-class people. He is all about how can the rich stay rich and the wealthy get wealthier. That is what his actions say, even though, you know, he his, his words speak differently. And personally, as someone who lives not far, so he, he has this, the part of the New York Times story that got me was he has this massive compound, you know, just jillions of acres somewhere in Westchester County. I don't live too far from there, but I, I mean, like worlds away from the size of this compound. And he has gotten out of paying any property taxes on this mega estate. Meanwhile, his own tax law, which put into was put into effect a few years ago, his own tax law made it basically impossible for us to deduct any of our property taxes. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I'm trying to be a homeowner out here. Our property taxes are really expensive. I mean, for me, like the double digits, you know, and not double digits, but like, uh, what do you call it? How many figures? Mm -hmm. You know, double digit thousands. Um, (laughs) Over 10,000. Yes. um, It is painful. And I'm like, this is just, that, that makes my blood boil because someone like that who has the resources. And by the way, property taxes, the reason we, we, we grin and bear it and pay them is we say things like, well, okay, this goes toward paying our teachers and paying for, you know, public services and, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of services that that help our community. And that's our contribution. This 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 story pretty much proved that this man has not done anything for anybody but himself and his children and his family and his his brand in the last couple decades. And it, it I think like I think you're right. It really affirms what we thought if you were anti-Trump, but I I, I don't know if it'll be enough to sway anyone, you know, who was always pro-Trump. Mm-hmm. I the one thing that like the the other silver lining of this is I feel like so I have an uncle who's who um, owns some real estate uh, real estate investment firm in Georgia in the Georgia area um, in the Georgia area in Georgia in the state of Georgia <laughs> and uh, you know I've heard through my cousin that one of the reasons he's pro Trump is Trump's story of being you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps self made billionaire this is the brand that people, you know, that people understand as Trump. Like he really made his fortune himself, blah, blah, blah. This article, like if you read it, he's a bad businessman. Yes. His businesses lose money. He's got some real, real good accountants though. They deserve some sort of prize. Mm-hmm. Like if there is a an Oscar for accounting, I mean, these people are like Olympic gold medal winning accountants because they've made this man stay afloat all this time. But that persona of I'm a very rich, I'm a very smart, I'm a very wealthy man with the biggest brain, like that is really, like the curtain has been pulled back. They say in the New York um, City, like a uh, real estate, like circles, like the high level circles, was it Bloomberg was like, uh, we all giggle at him. We like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like 
you know, it's almost like, you know, you, you go to college and someone pretends like, oh, yeah, when I was in high school, I was totally the coolest. I was totally like, all oh, the girls love me or whatever. And then you go back to your college and find out like, oh, you were a loser there, too. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he he's not fooling anyone who's close enough to really see. He's a Picasso, you know, from afar. It looks like maybe something up front. You're like, oh, the mess. But Okay, share. <laughs> Got that clueless reference. I know. <laughs> Like, what did I get this from? Yes. Uh, Alicia Silverstone. Right. Yes. I do. Yeah, that was my movie. <laughs> okay. So, but yeah, I just think that um, it's just, I'm not going to lie. Every day I'm like, okay, let's see now. What now? What now? What now? So, but I'm, yeah, I wasn't, I was actually surprised that he paid anything at all. Um, And I'm glad that the New York Times did this at this moment in time. And then, you know, like Mm -hmm. you said, for some people, he he, he can literally, and Trump has said this himself, he can literally kill someone on national television and his his biggest supporters would be like, well, what did that person do? So, um, yeah, yeah, this is not for them. These are are for the people who are on the borderline. Yeah, I mean, the debate with, by the time you guys hear this show, the debate, the first presidential debate will have been over. You know, I hope Biden takes this, the ammunition and uses it well. For me, it's it's just the, oh, <laughs> it's the hypocrisy. And it's like we were talking about last week on the show, you know, we get questions from people. So, you know, how can I, I hear about people not paying income taxes. Like, how can I, you know, what are some strategies I can use? And I'm like, oh, you need to be really freaking wealthy. Um, that The wealthy have the most access to these tax breaks because that is who the tax code was written for. And although we like to, you know, talk about Trump, he's he's following the, the playbook that Congress has made possible. So it's just another reminder that you can't just focus on the presidential election. You've got to focus about focus on your elected officials, the people who are writing the laws and writing legislation. Yes, it was Trump's tax plan a few years ago, but Congress passed it. And you have to, we're the people who put those people in the seats that they have where they can vote on these things. So you've really got to take that into consideration and please vote. Do we say it already? Vote. Vote. Right? It's vote, vote, vote. B-O-T-E-E. Yes. Vote, vote, vote. But speaking of real estate, that kind of has to do with today's show a little bit. Um, we talk about, well, honestly, we don't talk about this too, too much. You guys know about our personal stories, becoming homeowners and Tiffany's path to, you know, starting her real estate empire, which I'm sure is to come. We get a lot of questions actually from people who are like, you know, I'm interested in investing in real estate. I want an income property. How do you, how do you start? And we're really excited because today we have a returning guest, Lynette Calthani Cox, the money coach herself. What do we call her? Our fairy? Our fairy money. financial godmother. <laughs> yes. Um, our, 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 our money auntie. She is joining us today because Lynette has been quietly building a real estate empire of her own just across the country. It feels like her and her husband, Earl, have been purchasing income property after income property. And I would like to know her secret. I would like to know how she's doing it, why she's doing it, you know, what their thought process is behind it and, you know, how she's doing, especially in this economy as she's building up her uh, her portfolio of homes. So Lynette is joining us on today's show. I'm excited because, you know, I'm starting to get my little baby tone real estate, so I can't wait to see what theory financial godmother has to say. Yeah, I've been listening to, a, watching a lot of YouTube on real estate investing, and we have this house across the street that's pretty much been abandoned. Um, just like in a, in a pre-foreclosure situation, I don't know, but we were like, mm, let's get that house. We can do that. We can do this. Like, yeah, let's get a fixer-upper. It sounds easy on paper, so I really want to know what Lynette's strategy has been. I'm excited to talk to her. All right. Well, 
Should we take a quick break or is there anything else you wanted to cover before? No. Let's talk. Can you get Lynette on? Mm-hmm. Hey, BA fam, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. We're back and blacker than ever. No, I'm just joking. Um, we are blacker than ever because we have one of my favorite financial folks. She is our financial fairy godmother, as we mentioned earlier, Lynette Calvani Cox. <sighs> we stand. <laughs> yeah, we do stand. <laughs> we stand for the money coach. Uh-huh. Thank you so much for being with us, Lynette. No, you guys, I was totally looking forward to it. I'm happy to be here. I think you are our most guested guest. If there's like some sort of trophy, we could give the most, like having someone on the, the show that the much of the much. Can I speak words today? <laughs> <laughs> the most guested. You've been here a lot, Lynette. <laughs> yes. Totally cool. I feel like, you know, like SNL, like when somebody gets to host yes. SNL yes. and they get to, you know, and they ask them back again, again. I'm like, oh, hey, okay, good. I get to come back. You're Brown the Alex Baldwin of, of Brown Ambition. Yeah, that's yes. what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Well, we were talking but, a little bit before the show, and we know, yes. let's just take a whoo, like a deep breath because we know the world's on fire, literally, figuratively, politically, mm-hmm. it seems like. Um, but one of the silver linings, like you were just saying, is real estate. I mean, yes. at a time when everything seems so uncertain, you know, we we continue to get questions from listeners who are interested in, you know, how can I start building wealth? And of course, they're like me, and they read about real estate and the importance of owning property, and they want to start and, you know, it's something that we haven't really touched on too much. I think, Tiffany, you said, you, what are you dipping your baby toe into? Uh, to real estate, yeah. To real Very, estate investing. Mm-hmm. The pinky, the pinky one. The pinky toe. <laughs> and I have been semi-social stalking you, Lynette, and it seems like you and Earl, Mr. Earl, have been just acquiring property after property, slowly but surely, and building your own little real estate empire. And I was like, let's have Lynette on, because I would love to hear your approach to real estate investing and why you think this actually could be a good time um, if people are considering getting real estate. Right. Well, we have been slowly but surely building since uh, 2016. And it just got accelerated a lot in the last year. So um, we currently have eight properties, our, our own house that we live in, which is in the suburbs of, of Houston. We're in the kind of Northwest section of, of Houston and then seven um, rental properties. 
So, I don't know, where do you want to start? Like, how it first began or what our yes. approach is? Well, yes. yes. What or was your approach just... from the beginning? Was it eight always in your mind? Like, or were you like, let's start with one, and then accidentally you had eight? <laughs> how does that happen? No, I definitely did not have this in mind. But when the journey sort of began, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I think I want to have like 10 to 12 plus, <laughs> you know, so um, what had happened was <laughs> is, um, really, so it, it's kind of a circuitous thing. And, and, and I think, Mandy, we talked about this before. When our oldest daughter, Aziza, went off to college, you know, we were living in New Jersey. She went to college in Texas um, at UT uh, in Austin. And long story short, she lost her scholarship her first year. And she rebounded afterwards and, you know, got her A's again and was on the dean's list and all that good stuff. But bottom line, she didn't have her 3.5 GPA that was required. So she lost her scholarship. So as a result of that, we started looking for ways to lower her tuition because it was about three times as much the tuition, Mm. um, you know, a good 30 something thousand at the time per year. I don't know, 35, 38, something like that as an out-of-state resident. So I was doing some research and I said, oh, wait a minute. If you like, if she owns property in the state of Texas, then, you know, she can establish residency and then she'll get in-state tuition. So we just thought time to double down on Aziza, you know? And so we, we ended up buying her this, this first property. And, uh, we knew that relative to say the Northeast, to, to New York, New Jersey area, prices were very uh, affordable, very reasonable. And so the house, it was, a, it was a condo. I should say it is. She still lives there to this day. It was a condo that was $210,000. We put 10% down, so $21,000 down. We had about $4,000 in closing costs. So we came out of pocket about $25,000, which was about the difference that we would have been paying in her tuition, about you know, $10,000, $11,000 in-state costs versus $35,000, dollars $38,000 even out-of-state. So I was thinking like, okay, I'm going to be paying housing you know, on campus anyway, but if I can kind of get her started, I can get in-state tuition, you know, help establish credit in her name as well, put her on there. So... We knew that the Austin market was actually quite hot mm-hmm. uh, and that we could very easily get roommates in there to cover the mortgage. So that's pretty much exactly what happened. It was a two-bedroom, and in Aziza's room, which was pretty spacious, it was her and one other roommate in the room, and then a... Uh, another girl in the second bedroom who had the be- the, the big, uh, another bedroom all to herself. And so the two roommates paid uh, essentially to cover the mortgage. And it was about $1,400. And that's what the two, you know, two students, her two roommates were paying. So, you know, sophomore year, junior year, senior year, <laughs> that's exactly what happened. They're paying the mortgage, knocking down the principal balance on there. There's no profit in it for us, um, except, of course, having in-state tuition, having um, no housing costs, uh, because housing on campus at 
at UT was about 10000 a year as well. So we definitely got a financial benefit from it. Um, brilliant but, is all I'm thinking. Is, yes. is very brilliant. <laughs> very smart. So, so, so we would. So again, we kind of like stumbled into this strategy. If I'm, if I'm, again, if I'm honest, it wasn't like, oh, let me try to do this to start it off. So, so your first uh, step is have your daughter lose her scholarship. Got it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just want to be but, sure. Okay, but good, you know good, good. Don't freak out. Yeah, exactly. Become a real estate mogul. Got it. <laughs> exactly. Totally. So, so now you know what though. You know, first of all, I can't even tell you how many students that happens to that, you know, that first year you just kind of like, yes, oh. oh, that was me, girl. They brought me all the way home. My parents were like, oh, OK, come back home. <laughs> yeah. So um, and, and Aziza, she wound up, as it turns out, um, instead of graduating in 2019, she actually graduated in December 2018 and she graduated one semester early. So she did. She she bounced back and did, you know, like I said, very well. But um, it, it worked out so beautifully because. Again, her roommate stayed. Um, and then in her last, uh, after she graduated, she had an internship and she got a job and she's, you know, been doing very well working. And she was like, mom, I want to, I want to pay rent. And I was like, oh, I don't, why do you want to pay rent? I did this so you could get a start. You know, I don't want you. She's like, mom, I've had a start for three years. I've had, you know, I've had no rent, but I have to be financially responsible and blah, 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 blah. So um, she wanted to pay rent and she also wanted to um, have one of the roommates not uh, renew so she could have fewer girls in there. She was like, I want to have my own room. <laughs> so I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> so, so as it turns out this year in January of 2020, she got married oh. to her college sweetheart. Uh, he's he graduates and gets his master's degree in, in engineering this in December, but they still live in that place. So now, before the roommates were covering it, but then Aziza and Jacob live there now. In and now since January, they've been collectively paying the rent, uh, paying the mortgage on it, and paying so they cover it as um, their rent. And so, again, break even. It's, it's not like I'm, tr you know, we're not trying to make any money off of that in terms of profit. Although, good to say, prices have gone up, so it has appreciated in value. And Austin is 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 quite a great market. And what it showed me though was when you have a public university, which has you know forty thousand plus students, and there's high demand for housing and it's a, a very strong sort of economic base, your rental property will almost never go, you know, uh, vacant. You can constantly find tenants. So now fast forward to my son, Jakarta, he went off to college. He's um, three grades behind uh, Aziza. So he went also to a public university and still he's a He's a, uh, a junior there in college now in Raleigh, North Carolina, at NC State, uh, North Carolina State University. So when Jakarta was choosing colleges, he was looking at Loyola in uh, California, and he was looking at other private schools. And I was like, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh And I said, if something happens with your scholarship or anything, <laughs> I said, I want to be able to control that tuition and that, that private school tuition. It doesn't matter if you're in-state or out-of-state resident, it's going to be the same. And it was like 60 grand there. So I was like, no, 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 no. I said, you're going to do NC State. <laughs> and so um, he's super, super happy that he did. And he, again, did not falter at all. You know, Dean's List also, and it's done very well. But 
part of what I started strategizing was around, I told him, I said, listen, we're going to put you on the same track. We will buy you your first property and we will help you because we've, you know, made certain commitments to our kids and told them, you know, your job is to be a good person and a good student. We'll make sure you don't have student loan debt. We'll buy your first property, we'll buy your first uh, car, you know, ditto, you know, that kind of stuff. So he was, you know, totally, you know, down for the game plan. So for students at most kind of high quality schools, <laughs> um, they typically require them to live on campus their first year. And so um, we knew that that was the case. And we, we planned, we said, okay, so in the summer, right after your freshman year, we're going to buy you a property and that property will help you to establish residency going, you know, after your sophomore year, because you have to live in the property for one year. So last July, we bought Jakarta, a townhouse in Raleigh. And I'll t I mean, I don't know how much depth you want to go into it, but we ended up paying cash for that property. That wasn't our intention, but the bank started messing with us. And we, I was like, oh, no, y'all not going to stop me. So I, so we... we no, um, go into that detail because I feel like Tiff, you know, you you purchase your property cash, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So we share that. Yeah, so feel free. And also talk about the lending process because you're, right, you took out a mortgage for the Austin property. So in Raleigh, yeah, what happened? Correct. So... Well, okay, so here's the, the truth. So I, I was working with a local um, bank. I have an a, I have a amazing real estate agent in Raleigh who I love a lot. Um, the last you know several years, um, she's helped us because again, in our sort of portfolio, five of our properties are in Raleigh, and this agent has worked with us on all of them. And so I knew her and trusted her recommendations, et cetera. So she said, oh, here, this is a local lender I've worked with. Let's start here. So I was like, okay, fine. So we, you know, submit all of our paperwork. They run our credit. They check our assets. They tell us, okay, here, you're going to put down a 20% down payment. I said, not a problem. So um, because it's obviously considered an investment property with mm -hmm. Aziza's, because that was the first one we bought outside of our um, property in New Jersey at the time, it was really able to be as a, from a mortgage standpoint, a, like a second home. They, okay. A family member lived there, Aziza herself. So it did not have an investment uh, property rate attached to it, nor those same requirements, which are typically a higher down payment. So that's how we were able to put only 10% down for that first one. So, but for this one, because we already had the Austin property and, um, uh, our mountainside property, not to mention we moved last summer. So we moved from New Jersey to Texas. So we had our new residence here in the Houston area, which became our primary residence. Then we rented out our New Jersey property. That's another story. I'll tell you that in a minute. But long story short, when we bought Jakarta's property in July, um, it was definitely an investment property. There's no getting around it, even though he lives there, et cetera. And the bank was, you know, they were fine with that. Well, about two, 10 days, two weeks before the scheduled closing, the uh, loan officer, she told me, she said, our, you know how we portfolio our own loans? We, they don't sell them in the secondary market, you know, off. And, and, and so um, she said, our underwriters would feel a little more comfortable if you, you know, if you put down 25 percent 
instead of 20%. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, why? And then she was like, well, just, it just makes them feel, you know, they just, you know, more skin in the game. It's just more comfort and just in terms of risk tolerance and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, okay. I was like, okay, we'll put down 25%, you know? So then the week of closing on a Monday, we were going to close on Friday. The same person calls me and says, you know, the underwriters, they'll feel a lot more comfortable if you put down 30% instead of 25%. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was like, why? <laughs> and so then she said, well, it's just that, you know, different um, appetite for risk in the marketplace and they want to have a high degree. I said, look, you see how much cash I have. You see how, what my credit score is. You see that I have, you know, perfect credit, plenty of assets. There's no, you know, there's no, you're not taking any risk here. And it's, and I said, and you're asking me for something. I said, if you're asking for this, I'm sure that means that my interest rate is going to go down commensurate to this extra down payment that I'm making to, to, to offset quote unquote, the risk that the bank is taking. Right. And then she was like, no, it, it would be the same interest rate. And I was like, uh, no, it won't be. <laughs> so, so she said, well, you know, it just has to be this, 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 it has to be this way. And I was like, no, actually it doesn't. And she was like, excuse me. And I said, listen, I tell you what, I said, I don't know what you're doing on Friday, but I can tell you what I'm doing on Friday. I am closing on this property and I will be closing with or without you. And I just left it just like that. And she was like, uh, 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 she was like stammering. I'm sure she was shocked and probably nobody had told her that before, but I said, Absolutely not. And I, I, I don't know what the, you know, sort of trigger issue was, but, you know, Earl and I were kind of looking at each other like, are they messing with us? Are they, you know, like, is this, what, is this something, you know, you kind of hear about crazy stories or what's going on here. So that situation continued and she was like, yeah, talk to the underwriter. And I was like, you don't have to talk to the underwriter. You don't have to talk to me. I told you what I'm doing. You can come along for the ride or not. You can get these, you know, this point in these fees that you were going to charge me or not, or I can just close without you. <laughs> so I, I just was like, you know, as my good friend Latrice would say, deuces, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so you so, paid cash for that property. Okay. Yeah. So I yeah. was like, you know, and then I was, I, I, another reason, of course, because I was looking at the timeline and I knew that by August that I wanted Jakarta to have the house and I wanted him to have one year of residency because I knew coming into this year as a junior, you have to have lived in the property for one year, et cetera. So, and sure enough, this year, Jakarta was declared an in-state resident and he's going to be staying out there in, in, in Raleigh. And, you know, he worked out there, filed his taxes, he registered to vote. He did, you know, he did everything. And yes, he has a property out there as well to kind of get him started. But it was definitely not our intention. So that property was $158,000. We paid cash for it. And then, and I, again, I had no intention of doing that. I felt good that we were, you know, strong enough in a position to be able to do it because even though there was no crazy situation like with Aziza, it was, you know, let's help her, let's, you know, deal with a situation to a bit of recovery because she had a, a poor first semester and she was on probation and, you know, et cetera. But I, I, I felt confident knowing, you know, 
the the child that she was, that she was, you know, a good student and, and a hard worker, et cetera. But think about all the people who either the parent doesn't have the money to keep them in school if something goes wrong or, you know, the the wherewithal to make things happen if, you know, the system kind of starts messing with you. <laughs> so we did that. And then about six months later, we took the equity out of that property. We took about uh, 75% of equity out of that property. So again, I would have been fine to put a 20, 25% down payment up front. So if you can kind of reverse it in your mind, we now know that that's actually a very good strategy to acquire properties. See, if I had known going in that I was going to buy that property for cash, I would have negotiated a much better deal. I wouldn't have agreed to pay 158000 I would have tried to pay, you know, 148 or something mm-hmm. because I would have been able to get the deal done fast, just take it out of my account and just keep it moving. But now I know that it's actually one of the strategies that you can use if you're going to buy cash. You can go in more aggressively up front and you can get a mortgage on the back end. Again, it's you, if, if you, again, you just have to kind of reverse in your mind the thinking about what the process looks like. People think I put the money up front, 10%, 20%, 30%, whatever your down payment is, then I get a mortgage to fill in the gap. Well, no, you could also, if you have cash, you could buy the property for cash up front, probably get a much better price, and then get a mortgage on the back end. And it's effectively the same thing, except that you've been able to perhaps beat out other bidders or other investors, buy a property for a cheaper price, et cetera, and avoid initially, certainly, a whole bunch of you know closing costs and fees and, and things of that nature. So we both, Earl and I, have spent a lot of time in Raleigh, you know, going back and forth so many times with Jakarta. Um, visiting. I had taken him out there several times just before he even made the choice to to go to NC State. And we liked Raleigh a lot. We saw what was happening in Raleigh and we said, this reminds us of Austin. Very strong economy, local market, fueled a lot by uh, a number of college campuses. In this case, um, NC State is you know 20 minutes or so from Duke University and UNC Chapel Hill. The whole research triangle area is is doing quite well. And we started looking at property prices and we were like, this is this is pretty affordable here. These are really good prices. And the rents are nice and strong and demand is there, especially because again, near state, there are you know 40,000 plus students who are attending that campus who need some place to live because there's not enough housing on campus for everybody. So, um, so, so after that, we started looking and we got two other ones in the beginning of the year and then two more in this past summer. And so those four other rentals were all this year. So oh. two right before the pandemic and two in the middle of the pandemic, <laughs> um, one in July and one in August. So, and um, all in Raleigh, all in Raleigh. I love Raleigh. <laughs> I yeah. see that. Well, you also have like the connection because I think it may be hard for people to imagine buying property in a different state. But I mean, you're it's like you had the connection with your kids being there and it just happens like it, I, I also feel like the mentality of someone living in Jersey or New York or the tri-state area is like you see these prices other places that may make people like may make their eyes bug out. But from our perspective, it's like, oh, that's real cheap. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's uh, de- 
I mean, it's 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 dirt cheap compared to certainly the Northeast, where yeah. you know my house in 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 New Jersey is like six hundred fifty thousand dollars, but here these properties that I'm talking about, the lowest one I bought was about eighty thousand okay. dollars. The highest one was just under two hundred thousand. So uh, seventy eight thousand, if you want to be one hundred percent exact, and then one ninety one was the 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 last one I bought, and we we bid over the asking price for that one. It was multiple offers on it. And these are four, four units or four, um, not a four family. These are um, condo units, but they have four single bedrooms, four okay. single bathrooms, and they're, they're all student housing. Okay. Um, the, the, four, the four bedroom units, they're literally right by the campus. I love and that. And so, yeah. And again, and because I know this market very well, because I, first of all, I'm a parent and I know the mindset of a parent. You're not going to let your kid be in college. You're not, the kid is not going to, you know, we, we check the parents' credit, <laughs> you know, more than anything else, the parents' credit. And, um, and you know, anytime, if the student just stays in school, uh, there's no parent that's just going to like, like let the kid, you know, kind of like be out on the street. So, yes. you know, you, you, you do your due diligence in terms of, you know, checking the job and the credit and all that. And, and some of them are independent. The students can be independent, et cetera. So um, if for Jakarta's property, for example, he has a, a townhouse that's a two bedroom, three bath. It's pretty big. It's about almost 1400 square feet. And again, the mortgage on that property, I told you we took some equity out. The mortgage is $619. He has one roommate. The roommate pays $700 a month. There you go. So, and then on the other two properties, the mortgages are also, one of them is in the $600 range, $643, another one around $800. And the rental income, well, all in because it has HOA fee as well, about a thousand dollars, and the rents are about nineteen hundred to two thousand on the on the other two properties. So, so did you, you buy these properties leveraging the equity from that initial property? So did you, or did you pay cash? No, for- not at all. No, not at all. I, I never took any equity out of any of these properties. So we paid cash out of our own savings and out of our trust account. We have a a solo 401k. So let me explain something else to your audience because some of them might want to utilize this strategy at some point in the future. So out of the eight properties that we have, all of them have mortgages on it, including this property that we live in our own house in uh, in the Houston area. And, And the five of the properties, our property here in Houston, our property in New Jersey, the Raleigh property which is where our son lives and has the tenant there and the one that we just closed on in in August and the property that Aziza lives in right now. All of those are just traditional mortgages that, you know, with a, a, like you go through a bank and you get approved through the normal process, check your DTI, check your savings, check your credit, you know, you put your down payment, et cetera. Three of the properties that we have in Raleigh though are what, are, we're financed by what's called a non-recourse mortgage. Okay. And, and so a non-recourse mortgage is totally different. Basically, they're just looking at the property, valuing it, and saying, will it have enough rental income to cover this mortgage and have a, a strong enough debt service coverage ratio? And so they like to see 1.25 um, times. So like if your mortgage, say, was $1,000, they want to know that the 
rental income would be twelve fifty a month. Okay. And in our case, they're they're you know far exceed that. So a non-recourse mortgage, you can use your retirement assets. You can use money in a 401k, for example, which is what we did for three of these properties. And the down payment requirements are higher. You usually have to put down a minimum of 30%. um, But uh, some ask for 40 or 50%. In in our cases, we put down 40% on two of them and 30% on another one. Okay. And for taken from your 401k? Correct. Okay. Well, what's the, so I know you said you want to, because right now you have eight properties and you said ideally you want 12 to 15. Yep. So what's the, like, what's the end, end, end goal? Like, what's the, do you want to sell these? Like, you know, 20 years from now? Okay. Not at all. Not at all. So Earl and I are both super passionate about real estate. This is all just passive income streams for us. I don't want to sell anything. I want to be like how Warren Buffett is about stocks. When he, when you ask him like, when's the best time to sell? He'll say never, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I just want to be sitting on these properties. It's not that I might not ever sell like our, our house in mountainside, you know, we definitely, um, have thought about it and we have no need to sell it or anything like that, but we thought, okay, well maybe we should just keep it for, you know, let's, we'll, we'll see. But long story short, no passive income streams are what we're trying to develop and, you know, I'm not going to work as much as I work now forever. And so I like the idea of building up, you know, multiple streams of income and, and kind of these residual rental streams that, you know, we do a lot of work up front to, to acquire because I, I search and I'm, I'm really rigorous in my screening process. But after that, like we have property managers and, you know, that kind of thing. And it's and it, and it works out great. That's the piece I would like to talk about a little bit is, you know, you guys are landlords now. How do you so do you outsource that management, the screening of applicants? Um, if you have like four tenants for each rental, you know, in a college campus area, that's got to be a lot of work. So can you talk about like the the paperwork side of it, the managerial side of it? Sure. So um, we definitely have a property manager. And for at first we didn't, we really kind of didn't need to. So for, for two of the properties that we, that we bought in uh, January, that the ones that we initially did the non-recourse lending with, and by the way, just in case anybody's curious, I have no affiliation or anything with these companies, but I'm just telling you, cause sometimes people don't know. And I, I'd like people to just like, like, okay, go check them out and see for yourself. We use a lender called Peak, uh, Peak Asset Management for the first two properties. And then for this most recent one, we used a lender called First Western Federal Savings Bank. Great experiences, honestly, with both of them. So I, I, I you know, it, it was good all the way around. For the first two that we did with the non-recourse loans in Raleigh, they are single units. And really, we kind of just didn't even need, it, one has a couple living there and another one, a couple, which, and they have a kid. And it just, you know, they're just responsible. They just send a check. It's, it's really, I mean, it's kind of like not much to do. Plus, one of them we totally renovated after we bought it. So it's, you know, it's, it's in good good condition and whatnot. So, but for these other ones, the, the student housing, yes, <laughs> you know, and three of them are specifically designed with uh, students in mind. So Jakarta's property, you know, the guy who lives there with him, he's a recent college graduate. Again, he's, you know, engineering guy. He pays. There's no issues and really nothing to do. But the other properties, yes, 
we got a property manager, um, it's Wilson, in case anybody's interested, <laughs> um, who is known for managing student housing in that area. So one of their offices is like right there at the unit. And so if the, if the students have any issues or any problems, they go to them first and they just fix it. They just handle it. If there's any bills, then they send it to us. They get our approval, et cetera. And it's worth it. And in general, you're going to pay anywhere from 7 8%, maybe 9%. Our, our fee, I believe, is, is 8% on the rental management fee side in terms of whatever the income is that they're collecting and what they're managing. It's, it's usually about 8%. You can negotiate, et cetera. But the more properties you get, you definitely, I would encourage people to have a property manager. It just makes your life so much easier. And where so does- I kind of, oh, Tiff, you go. Go. Mm, you go. No, no, I just had a quick, like, uh, like kind of like Jersey specific, uh, because so the house in Jersey said it's about 700,000. You're renting that out. Is it hard to find renters who, because I, the my house, my parents, they, they live in Westfield, which is right next door to Mountainside. No, it's not at all. Okay. Tiffany, let me tell you what happened just very quickly. So in Westfield, I know it well, because like you said, it's right next door to, to Mountainside, which is where we lived. In our area, you know, it's the little McMansions and the million dollar homes and this and that. Our house was not that. It was, it's a very, it's a, it's a nice little house, but a modest house compared to all the other ones. Ranch style home, good, good size land, about uh, 0.4, 0.45 or so acres in terms of the size, pool in the back three bedroom, three bath, completely finished basement. But we renovated everything before we left. We did the whole kitchen over, the floors, the you know paint, we did blah, 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 right? We initially, um, so we had a real estate agent to list our property. She said, oh, you're gonna get a buyer who's like coming from another state or from out of the country, who's, you know, you're gonna get a certain kind of buyer. I was like, fine, as long as they pay our rent, you know? So initially we asked and put it on for $3,900 a month, $3,900 per month. And she said, no, that's going to be too much. That's, you know, that's, that's just way too high. I'm going to say $3,500 a month and blah, blah, blah. And Earl and I were like, nah, we, we think this, we, we know this area. We know what people, are, you know. So um, we got a guy who was a former CEO. Well, actually he, he is a CEO. He and his wife were in Florida. They were business owners. He actually came out of retirement to um, run a, 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 a food uh, packaging type of company in New Jersey. They saw the house. They loved it. Um, and he did ask. He was like, oh, you know, I, I want to, you know, do a year or two years. I don't know what yet. And they just recently renewed again. But he said, can we do 3800 instead of 3900 We were like, yep. <laughs> we were like, awesome. yep. So, I mean, great credit, good tenant, and it's been no problems whatsoever. So we're like, oh, we love these people, you know. So, um, you know, no, that market, especially because you know where we are off of the, off of Route 22 mm -hmm. and, you know, access to New York is great, especially a lot of New Yorkers, when they come and they see what they can get in the suburbs there in that part of Jersey, they're like, oh my God, a backyard and this and that. Yes. And we have, my parents have a double lot and it's five bedrooms two full kitchens and uh but it, and it's paid off i paid it off for them uh, two years ago and honestly they're not looking to move um they love you know their neighborhood but i was just thinking to myself like oh you know if they ever want to move would we have to sell it? i would hate to sell our family home um because i wasn't sure if we would get you know people would pay rent it's the house to your point it's not this mcmansion it's actually 
even though it has the five bedrooms, good size, three, four baths, but it's still a, a modest size for like a Westfield. Um, so yeah, so that's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. I think Westfield has a, a, a pretty strong market and, uh, you know, even more than Mountainside, honestly, because of the downtown area and a little bit more, I don't know, maybe cachet, so to speak. But I've been super, super happy with everything. And I think that if somebody does have, you know, stability and financial wherewithal, I'm a huge believer in real estate. And I think that it is something that people should kind of dip their toes into. I'm not a person who tells, who says like, oh my God, every single person should be a, a homeowner and blah, blah, blah. Because honestly, so many different situations and Sometimes people think, well, gosh, I should start my own thing. I should go from renting to owning, and then I should get an um, investment property. Well, honestly, I know several people who are right now who are renters who are looking at buying investment properties, and they're very clear on the fact that, nope, they don't want to be an owner for a whole you know, variety of reasons, but they do want to develop passive income streams. They do want to have some uh, income outside of their normal, their, their, their nine to five jobs. For me, again, it's part of our long-term uh, and retirement strategy. I like the idea that uh, even though, you know, you have to keep investing in the stock market, you can do other things. I actually like hard assets. I like tangible things me because too. I can, I can manage this risk so much better. You know, in theory, at least a stock can go to zero. A company can go bankrupt, you know, all kind of stuff can go wrong. Nothing's going to go wrong with my, um, real estate investment that I haven't already covered. So what, what's the worst that could happen? A fire could happen and literally level the thing to the ground. Well, I got insurance for that. <laughs> you know, a, stor- a storm, a tornado, a hurricane, something could come. And, well, I got insurance for that. <laughs> you know, you know, we got a ridiculous amount of insurance up the wazoo. But, <laughs> but um, overall, I'm, I'm very comfortable that this is not only uh, a series of appreciating assets, but that this is something that will, you know, as we retire or contemplate, we call it being work optional. We're like, oh, this gives us more flexibility. This gives us more of a chance to say, oh, you know, no to stuff that I don't want to do. And, you know, it's just a much um, more comfortable kind of positioning of being diversified. So your strategy and like the holistic look at your retirement goals, it's interesting. And and I like that you made the distinction between like hard assets and stock market investing. Can you talk a little bit about how you like, I don't know if you, how do you quantify when you have this many properties? I don't know how you quantify, you know, I guess you add up all your mortgages and then the value of the homes and you get your equity and that's your, you know, measure of asset there. But when it comes to like how much you guys continue to invest in the market, how do you, are you more leaning on the real estate side? Are you still in the market? Like how do, how do you guys think about, you know, diversifying your portfolio now? Okay. So that's a great question. And uh, the first thing that I do when I'm looking to see for acquisition purposes, I'm looking at ROI and I, I have pretty aggressive targets I typically want to see like a 20% return on my investment. However, I would be willing, you know, if I say, mm, this is a great market, I can see the prices, because I always track, you know, prices to see like trends and what's happened. Like literally Jakarta's, um, the property that we bought in, in 2019 for 158, it's valued right now at about 180,000. And so, um, 
when I see numbers like that, I'm like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> you know, oh, let me go get another one right there. But like even today, Earl and I are talking about Amazon and we keep, and this is like ridiculous, but in general, I am more comfortable investing in real estate than I am in the stock market. And overall, like when I tell people like the average person for their advice, I'm going to literally tell them stick to mutual funds, you know, get yourself an index fund, et cetera. But again, because I have actually a pretty high risk tolerance, my husband is more fiscally conservative than I am. But he's like, okay, come on, let's go get some Amazon stock. Let's go get, you know, and about, you know, maybe a year ago, I I said, oh, okay, Earl, let's, you know, we were looking at different things to do with, you know, different buckets of money. And um, I was saying, I, I, I put it on paper and I showed him my thing and I said, you know what, we just need to buy some some Amazon and some Netflix and, and, you know, just call it a day and just leave it in there and just don't even look at it. So every like three or four months, I've been showing him like, oh, dang, look at this, look at this. Then I'm like, Terry's going to like tell, kill me, <laughs> you know, um, um, Terry Egioma. Um, I took a stock trading class with her. Um, yes, which was, I love which was her. Awesome. Oh, I love her too. So literally over the weekend, Earl was like, just pull the trigger, buy the daggone thing. And just, you know, so he asked me today, we went out on a walk today and he was like, okay, so where is Amazon? And, and I was giving him pricing and, and I, you know, I was telling him, oh no, it was up today. And, you know, but, um, overall, you know, honestly, I am, I like the idea of set it and forget it to a certain extent. And I do still think like it's important to keep things in just, you know, a total market index fund, or even if you're just like happen to be into tech or you want to be a dabbling in fang stocks, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, you know, Netflix, Google kind of thing, then you can just literally buy a, a total market index fund and you'll have very high exposure in that, in that sector as well. Oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah. We know um, that. We tell people that all the time. What does Lynette do? <laughs> well when you uh, get when you get like your main source of income you know from your coaching business and all of that like do you have some sort of like set in stone rule of thumb okay I'm going to put 30% here this is going to go in the real estate savings fund like yeah sort of how do you think about it or I'm going to you know do you have like your standard mutual fund that you invest in and then you have like you know individual stocks on the side that you and Earl you know can play around with what does that breakdown look like I cannot say that I've literally um, attempted or intentionally designed a sort of an overall portfolio that's like, okay, let me stay in, you know, 70% stocks and 20% or rather 70% real estate, 20%, you know, stocks uh, or mutual funds and and 10% individual stocks, et cetera. Not at all. And so if you want to know what we do just in general, yes, some investments, but the vast majority is actually in the last two years in real estate and in cash, like a ridiculous amount. And so Earl will send me these emails and he was like, see, it's not just me. <laughs> he'll, like he'll see an article in, in, I don't know, in Forbes or something that says the rich are hoarding cash, mm. you know, and it's like, and he'll send me this stuff like now during the pandemic. I'm like, yeah, everybody's hoarding cash now, <laughs> of course, like, who, you know, <laughs> we have buckets of money for different things, right? And I, in general, I, I, I don't mind having 
high levels of cash for just, you know, emergencies, for the unexpected. And he he always has a thing, he calls it, quote unquote, the perfect storm, meaning like, but what if everything goes to hell in a handbasket? Ooh, Earl is my, that is my twin right there, because I always think like that. Wait, are we already in the handbasket on the way to hell? Yes. That's what it feels like. That's what I've been saying. I've been like, can it get this worse than this? This is the right? Damn, you know. <laughs> but I'm like, I, it, it, it makes me antsy to see so much cash that's not being put to use. So, because I'm like, I could be getting a return on this. That's gets be- into the. That's just that's different between my husband and I. We have very different investing philosophies, and we're constantly in this tug of war. You know, he wants to do this, I want to go there. It's hard to find a middle ground. So it's good to hear that y'all, even y'all, haven't figured it out. <laughs> oh no, we totally, we're totally. And but can I tell you this one thing? This part I have discovered. Honestly, there's almost like no wrong answer. The idea is do something, just go for it. I'm not saying you will never have a loss. You should, you know, do your homework and do your due diligence, but just in general, trust me, you'll be so much happier later, a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. It's just about prioritizing like, okay, what should we do first? I don't regret any purchase we made just like even on the spending front when I was, you know, traveling like a, like a mad woman and going out of the country four times a, a year you know, I don't regret it. <laughs> so, um, well, I think, so, hold on one second. Tiff, did you? Yeah, I have to jump on. Tiffany yeah. has to go. Oh no, it's, it's past seven. Tiffany has to go. <laughs> okay. So do you want to, do you want to do like a wrap up? We can, let me wrap up like... with Lynette. I have like one more question. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Let's wrap up with Lynette and, uh, you guys be a fam. You want to stick around with me, Lynette? <laughs> yes, of course you do. <laughs> All right. Bye. Right, okay. Lynette. So we're still here and you were just talking about sort of there's no right way to do things and how start just do something, do anything. I'm constantly saying that. I'm like, you can obsess over the right way to do it or, you know, the right amount or what perfect star alignment you need before you jump in, but then you're kind of wasting time, right? Absolutely. And again, my, even me sort of looking at, at Amazon is a, is a great reflection of that because, all of the time you spent, you know, fretting over, thinking about, waiting for the right time to get in. It's like, okay, well, uh, this stock is moving, <laughs> you know. And so, again, and that's my own risk tolerance. That's my own, you know, sort of appetite, and me wanting to make sure, like, okay, okay, Earl, you you're gonna be good. And he's like, do it already, <laughs> you know. Well, it's, it's so, good to um, have someone more conservative, kind of holding you back. Maybe you need a little bit of that balance. Um, yeah. Or at least someone and, asking and I, the questions that I'm a hothead and I like to move quickly. If someone slows me down and asks questions, then maybe I won't be so, you know, quick to jump at something. Right. And I really do think that like a huge part of marriage is that whole yin and yang thing where it's it's good to have that counterbalance because, you know, two people forging, going right ahead, you might fall off a cliff, yeah. you know. And two snails, you just kind of never get anything done. So it, it is necessary to have that sort of middle ground. Overall, though, this part I have learned, like I said, is that so many times when people fall victim to inertia or to just doing nothing, they kind of get paralyzed with fear. They get information overload and then they just literally do nothing. And then, yeah, life kind of keeps passing them by. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, the difference between, you know, a three month, a six month, a 12 month. And then it's like, ah, you know, but overall, you're not going to look back like two years, three years, you know, in the medium term range or certainly a long term range, having done something to invest. 
even if you said, oh my gosh, should I save more money or pay off debt first? You know, should I buy this one property? It's kind of like, go for it. Stop talking yourself out of getting your financial blessings. Yeah. It's, and you know, it's a lot of it is in your head. And I think, well, if we can just remind the folks, this is called brown ambition. And I feel like brown and black people, especially when we're starting to build wealth, we are so often the only ones or the first or, you know, we don't have the benefit of a lot of people to, to you know, like an uncle or an aunt or a grandparent, whatever, to sit us down and explain how things work. And so it is, it's, it feels riskier because, you know, and I'm not even just speaking for myself here, but there's not really a blueprint for it. And yeah, you do kind of have to give yourself more of a push because it, you may not be one of several, you know, in your circle to have done the thing. Like your children, like this is the true meaning of generational wealth. It feels like you've really set your kids up for success. And that's certainly as a new mom, you know, I've got a little baby. I'm sure you can hear right. him. Um, little boy. I, yeah, like that's goals for me, 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, and before I, before I let you go, I do want to ask, not to put it, not to put y'all your, you know, your age out there, but y'all are coming from this at a very different perspective than like I have come from it or Tiffany even. I mean, y'all, your kids are, you said your youngest is 14. You've got kids in college. Y'all are not 25 investing. So the fact that you're more conservative, I mean, how does age and your closeness to what do you call it? Work optional um, retirement. How does that play into your strategy? Because people have to also take that into context when it comes to like risk tolerance. Mandy, that's a great question. And I don't mind saying it at all. I turned 52 this year. My husband is 56. And yes, so our oldest is 23. Um, our son is 20. He'll be 21 at the end of the year. And Alexis is is 14. She turns 15 in November. So it's definitely the case that our age and sort of where we are in terms of our career and in our own personal timeline towards being work optional, that definitely plays a huge role in our risk tolerance and what we're willing and able to do, emotionally able to do, mostly. So Alexis, for example, just started ninth grade. So we've had ever since, you know, Aziza went off to college, then Jakarta went off to college. We've had our, what we call our countdown to the kids being G and G, grown and gone. (laughs) And so so now we're at that point where we're like, wow, we can see, you know, the end of the tunnel kind of four more years, Alexis will be going off to college. So at that point in four more years, she'll go through and then she'll have, uh, you know, four years of undergrad and potentially if she, you know, chooses to keep going on uh, more, but certainly we've already committed um, to being by the time she goes off to to college, being at that work optional phase, being financially able to just be like, okay, we're good, and we don't have to work anymore. We don't, we don't, you know, we don't want to, we don't need to. So that means to continuing, continuing to do what we promised our kids, because we have other, like I said, just paying for college. That's a a, a challenge, you know, to to tell them, okay, you won't have student loans, and. Um, it's all in the context of, yes, we're, you know, getting older. None of us is getting any younger. Even beyond that, though, everybody has their own kind of risk tolerance and their own appetite for, quote unquote, going for it. For me, the real estate side of things does feel like a great way to build wealth, to leave a financial legacy for my kids, to teach them about 
the value of home ownership, especially at a time when we're having this national racial reckoning and we're highlighting so much the disparities, the income inequalities, the structural racism that Black folks have faced that continue to affect us to this day, so much so that for whites, the home ownership rate in this country is 77%, and for African Americans, it's about 44%. That's a huge gap. And so when I look at property building and wealth building and just buying a first home and then a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth and a seventh and an eighth, hell yeah, I'm proud of it. And I, and I do want to blaze a path and I do want to show people that it can be done. And I do want to inspire and light a fire under people to, to know that it's not rocket science. It's like once you kind of learn and get the, the, the basics down, like what should I be looking for? How should I do it? What are the, what are the bank requirements and the qualifications? Um, it's doable. And so, and again, for me, like I said, I, I feel so strongly and so passionately about real estate um, as a pathway to, to wealth building. You know, I did a book years ago called The Money Coach's Guide to Your First Million, and it was obviously focused on wealth building and becoming a millionaire, et cetera. But the idea there, I laid out the different pathways to building wealth. And of course, real estate was one of those pathways. And Mandy, you're talking to a girl who grew up, you know, in Los Angeles in a two bedroom apartment my entire life. You know, my parents divorced when I was seven years old and my parents had five daughters. So for most of my life, it was my mother in one bedroom in an apartment and me and my other sisters in the other bedroom. So two sets of bunk beds, you know, with five girls in those four bunk beds. And so, yeah, I definitely recognize that, whew, this is, uh, you know, a, a big difference from how I was raised and what I got to experience. But my kids have known another life and hopefully they'll do better and they'll, you know, show an even better, stronger um, pathway to, to teach their kids. And I, I hope they excel me in every way possible uh, and, and exceed, you know, far beyond what, what Earl and I have been able to accomplish. Well, that's beautiful. And sometimes I, you know, I, People ask us and they come to the show and, and, you know, we're a personal finance and career and investing show. At the same time, it's like racial injustice is so intertwined in the fabric of financial security for African-Americans, for black families in this country. Um, so it's impossible for us to talk about money without talking about, I think, race. And, you know, I think that's the that's the intent of our show is really to speak to people from that place. Like we know that you may not like you may be the first or one of few, you know, in your family to be pursuing this. But like you said, Lynette, it's not that hard. And maybe we can be the friendly voices in your head giving you that little push you know, to start building wealth. And I think all the protests and this, the, the reckoning that we're in right now, that's, that's much needed. The rage is justified. But I also feel like, what can we control? We can get out there. We can earn our coins and we can build wealth. We can own things. We can take back ownership of land, property. For me, that's part of the, you know, that's really the end game. It's like you said, it's to to, to make things better and to, you know, take some steps forward, take a little bit of risk and not, you know, not wait for someone to, to make things right. I think we can try do our best to make things right. That's right. That's right. You said it. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm sad you Tiffany. You are so very welcome. <laughs> I'm sad Tiff couldn't <laughs> stay know. for the end, but I'm glad to have you for these little, these few extra minutes by myself, all to myself, Miss Lynette. Um, well, tell <laughs> folks how they can find you. Where Where are you at these days? Twitter, Insta? Yeah, I, um, you know, TikTok. I'm everywhere. I'm, I have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, all of that. Um, and then my own sites, of course, my free financial advice site, askthemoneycoach.com. And then our video-based platform for uh, group coaching, et cetera, is moneycoachuniversity.com. I've just been so, you know, I've been on Twitter a lot more than I've been on Facebook. And I just mainly, you know, I just feel so distracted. Honestly, I feel so like there's just so much heaviness, you know, that we're all kind of dealing with. And so I haven't been as active on social, you know, just mainly because I'm like keeping my head down, trying to, you know, keep my own sanity and keep my family tight and together and, you know, social distancing and dealing with the pandemic and, you know, watching the the, the craziness that that is the run up to November 3rd (laughs) when the real craziness will start, you know. Yeah. So. um, Well, protect yourself any way you can. And if that means social media break, (laughs) that's for me, it's like throw yourself into work and you know, focus on what you can control. It seems healthy, but you're right. And it's, you know, we can sit here talking about real estate and then I, you know, acknowledge the craziness that's happening in the country at the same time. Um, But that's why I even more am grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for spending some time with us. I know there's so many demands on everyone's time these days. Everyone's struggling in the pandemic with crying babies and snoring husbands and kids at home. (laughs) So I, we really love to have you on the show, Lynette. And thank you for, for joining us again. Thank you, Mandy. Appreciate it. All right. You take care. And you guys check the show notes. We'll put links to the Money Coach University and all, uh, all Lynette's socials. Um, thank you again, Lynette, for joining us. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.